your first order of business is to find something in the room that is blue. And when you found something in the room that's blue, raise your hand. Right? You don't have to touch the thing that's blue now, you all. You, you can just look at it. All right, find something green. A little harder, right? Blue's more in right now. Green, yeah, raise your hand when you found something green. All right, find something red. All right, you've done very well. Give yourselves a hand. Um, beautiful, beautiful color identification on your part. Did you notice how many different shades of each there was? Right? But I said red, and you pointed to something that may have been very different than the thing that somebody else pointed to. Same with blue, same with green. The, the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer had an aesthetic theory that became sort of famous. But in one part, I was a 19-year-old freshman in college taking intro to philosophy. And this stuck with me. He said, from the moment when I have judged an object to be red, I have stopped looking at it. From the moment I have judged an object to be red, I have stopped looking at it. Anybody kind of get a sense of what he means? We put red in one big bucket just now. Right? There are a lot of different reds going on, but we stayed with, OK, it fits the general category, we're good. But there are a lot of shades of reds. Just, just like there are people we tend to put in categories when they're very different from one another. We tend to take our eyes off things and just file it. OK, that's red, I'm done with it. That person is X, I'm done with her or him. And we live in a cancel culture, right? We live in a cancel culture where that person is X can become I'm never talking to that person again, or I'm unfriending them, or whatever is your form of dismissal, right? And, and so on Sunday, Thomas Daniel preached a beauty, as usual, on Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, the church for a couple thousand years, has said, is bright red, as in alarm, as in uh, danger Will Robinson, right? He is the problem. He is the fiend. He is the guy who sent Jesus to the cross. And so if you've ever watched a Jesus movie or a Jesus series, the guy they cast for Caiaphas is always the most fiendish looking. They look like people you would never, ever, ever want to meet in your life. And if you saw them, you'd run the other way. That's how we look at Caiaphas, right? I think, as Thomas suggested on Sunday, that we take another look. Now, the place we ended on the, in the sermon on Sunday was by featuring the fact that, that uh, Caiaphas and his guys plotted against Jesus by stealth, right, secretly. And so we, we spent some time on Sunday in the sermon sort of sitting with our tendency to go quiet, go secret, if there are things we don't want seen about ourselves. And we, we spent a little time realizing that that might be something we'd want to repent for, right? That might be something that's not working for God or for us. And so we lingered there a bit and said, that thing I'm hiding I better bring it to the light, or else I can't get it healed. That's where Thomas ended up. I, as you can tell by my red and already judged it thing, I'd like us to have a chance 
at repenting of these things where we think we know somebody and we just classify them and move on. And by the end, I hope we will have made our way through Caiaphas this way, but we've got projects in our own life that we probably ought to work on in this area. People we have already classified, people we have already dismissed, whether they are television personalities or the person who lives next door. Right? So, so tonight, we're going to make Caiaphas our inroad to a part of us, a, a thing that we do, and see if we can find how looking at him again helps us in our daily life now. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read some Bible. Will you pray with me? Our God, every time we open this book in your presence with one another, you give us light, and we are grateful for that. We love that we get to read it together, that you're going to give wisdom through the things we talk about tonight, whether we talk about them at table, whether I say them, however they get to us, you seem to work when we gather around Scripture. And so do it again, we pray. Soften our hearts by what we do tonight. Open our minds by what we do tonight. Draw us to yourself by what we do tonight. And draw us to one another by what we do tonight in Jesus. Amen. All right, I have Bible will travel. So if you need a Bible, I have 12 of them. Anybody need one or are you all electronic Bibles? Right, because you're going to want to have one so you can look at stuff. I'm going to have a lot of it on the screen for you to read. But if you've got a Bible on your, on your iPhone or if you've got a Bible somehow with you, use it. If you don't this week, get ready to bring it next week because I'd like to save you uh, kind of PowerPoint time and we can look at Bible together, all right? But for now, I put them all on here just in case you need them. The passage we featured on Sunday was, oh, I need to go back to this just for a second. Do you see this art that MP and, yeah, do come up. Um, free Bibles, free Bibles. Um, the, the art that they've put in play, again, MP and Raul and Melissa are amazing in the communications team. But notice how there are six weeks and six characters here. One of them is simply a placeholder. I'll let you work on which, which one because I'm preaching Palm Sunday and I, my guy is the donkey, <laughs> right? The donkey Jesus rides in on. So they didn't want to put a donkey here. I'll let, I'll let you suss out which one is the placeholder. This is the passage from Matthew 26 that Thomas introduced us to on Sunday. I want to sort of get into it by giving you a quick biography of my relationship with Scripture. I grew up in a sort of nominally Christian United Methodist Church household. We went to church, and it was a great thing to be... We helped people, we were social, but I didn't really see the Bible much, either at home or at church, until I got to sixth grade. And a guy named Joe Hoover came into town. I, I was from a 2004-person town, and uh, one of those persons was Joe Hoover, my, uh, and, and he was the only black person in town. And he happened to move just down the street. And we hit it off, and he was a Bible guy. He gave me later in life his King James Version that he had marked and cried on and all of the things that make a Bible yours. And it was the one of the best gifts I've ever gotten. 
but he started getting me to look at scripture and we would have memorization contests and then I, I became a Christian in, in high school and we went deeper and then we did a lot more memorizing, we reading a lot, asking questions, all those things and it turned out that that was good because I ended up going into Bible when I got to graduate school and getting to teach Bible to college students and grad students uh, and, and so my relationship with the Bible is since I was in sixth grade, and it's always been, from that time on, uh, mother's milk for me. It's what I, when I prayed, every time we open this, you do good things, I, I did it on the basis of about, what, 45 years of, of experience having that happen, right? So many of you will nod your head because that's happened in your life. Others of you may be relatively new to Bible, but this five weeks that we're going to spend, we're going to get to go deep into the passages that we get quickly on a Sunday morning. This one is a relatively long one that we'll course through from Matthew 26, where Caiaphas enters the scene early and then comes in late, as we saw on Sunday. But let's read it together. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus and secretly, secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Jesus, it turns out, during Holy Week was astonishingly popular in Jerusalem. People were flocking to hear him speak. They had a riot on their hand if they did anything that seemed to dent him. Right? Later in the story, we're going to see how they pulled it off. They went at night. They went secretly. After skipping a bit, those who had arrested Jesus took it. So we've already been now to the, the night on which they do it, on the, which they approach Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, uh, and, G, and Judas betrays him. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two of these false witnesses came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple, and, uh, temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Have you ever been in a room where Silence was the most powerful thing. You know, people are going at one another in a committee room, going hard at one another, and the person who is silent at the end and comes in after all the frenzy is the most powerful person in the room. Jesus knew the power of silence in this situation, even though he was kind of the powerless member of the group. Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I don't know what they made of that. Kind of a tense moment. I don't know if they were, let's see, where in the Hebrew Scriptures does it say that? Um, but it made them mad, right? The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? That's Caiaphas's line. He's worthy of death, they answered. 
So Caiaphas is the leading questioner here, and he waits for the answer of condemnation by death. They're going to, they're going to have him put to death. At the time, of course, Jewish leaders could not legally put anyone to death. They could condemn someone, they could find them guilty, but Romans were the only ones with the prerogative to, to use the death penalty. And so, he's worthy of death is one step short of being able to execute it. Uh, no pun intended, right? It's one, one step short of their power to do that. But what I want you to do for two minutes is talk to the people in your group about something that you heard along the way that either piqued your uh, curiosity or stopped you up short or made you nod or anything that, that in that passage that I've just read that caught you, okay? Two minutes, really just two minutes. So talk to the people at your table. Ready, go. All right, this is Bible speed dating. Um, it is really hard to get much done in two minutes, but it moves your mind toward one another a little bit. Uh, I, I do that partly uh, because we've got a lot of people in a room and it would be nice for you to get to connect with one another about some of the things we do, but partly just to illustrate, I, I got to study in my, in my graduate program and then actually blessedly be in faculty with some of the most revered New Testament scholars in the world. And the best Bible study I was ever a part of happened when I was high school with, with Joe Hoover. And it was led by a woman who was a pastor's wife and hadn't really trained beyond just reading the Bible a lot. And she got us in a circle and she just asked questions about the text and let us go in our 16 and 17 year old selves and just fly with the book. So it is a beautiful thing when Christians just open a, open a Bible and say, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what it meant to us, what, it, what we think's behind it. I mean, somebody may know the Greek of it. Whatever you know, right, you get to share with one another. That makes good Bible study happen. It doesn't always happen to have to be from an expert. Uh, Belinda Racer was not an expert. She was just somebody who liked to read the Bible and read it a lot. That's the woman who taught, taught us in, in my high school study. So we aren't going to have time to mine or harvest all of your connectedness, right? All of the things you, you brought up, but hold them because they're gonna come in handy as we go into the next passages, which also feature Caiaphas, but weren't featured on Sunday. So these, for those of you who were in church, these are the ones you didn't see on Sunday. Those of you who weren't in church, please go back and listen to the sermon. It's, it, this is gonna be by design a sort of Sunday, Wednesday reverb. So if you can stay on that rhythm, I tell you, this is a great back and forth that, that moves the scripture more deeply into us and moves our hearts forward with, with the sort of repentance of this season. All right, now this happens in the book of Acts. Anybody want, in the book of Acts, early, early days, third chapter, this thing on the left happens. Anybody want to try to identify what happens in the left? The apostles have had Pentecost happen and then chapter 3 comes, and Peter and John are out one day, and there's a guy there who can't walk. And he's, uh, he's begging for, for help, right? And he asked them 
for money. He asked Peter and John for money, and famously they say, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Be rise and walk. And lo and behold, the guy, he, don't, he doesn't just rise and walk, he, he walks and leaps and praises God. Famous line. So this has just happened. And you can imagine that Peter and John's popularity swells as people see, wait a second, they're doing Jesus-y things now. They, they're, they're healing this guy. And so everybody's in awe, and their crowd of supporters has grown. What do you think that did to the powers that were? Chapter 4 is the next day. The quote from here. Notice I don't have the healing on the text. I'm doing what, what the response was to the healing by the powers that were. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? So, Peter and, and John had a, <clears throat> had a great start at Pentecost. Then they start healing people, and the crowd grows and grows, and it upsets the powers that are, and Caiaphas is a part of the powers that are. This is another place where he shows up in Scripture. A third place is actually in, Acts, in, in Luke chapter 3, same author, because Luke and Acts are written by the same person. Uh, traditionally held to be Luke, right? And so, in, in, I didn't put it up because it's really quick. In Luke chapter 3, Luke names all of these dignitaries right up to the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, but includes in that list of all the hot shots, includes, and Caiaphas was the high priest in Jerusalem, and yada, yada, yada. In, in the midst of all those amazing big people, the word of, the God, word of God landed with John the Baptist. Right? It's a great moment in Luke, but Caiaphas is one of the guys that didn't get what John the Baptist, this ugly prophet who's bony and pointing his finger out in the wilderness, did get, which was God's visit visitation. So Caiaphas comes in just in a quick go in Luke chapter 3. But here's where I want to zero in a little bit. Therefore, many of the Jews had come to visit Mary. This was after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. This is where, just before this, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? And, and then in the episode after, one of, one of uh, Lazarus's sisters was named Mary. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Tattletales. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Two things to notice at this point. Sometimes passages like this where the, the Jewish elders rise up against Jesus and scheme and plot against Jesus. Sometimes passages like this get taken to be a problem with Jews. Everybody in this picture is a Jew, including Jesus. So the history of anti-Semitism because of Bible is not Bible's fault as much as it's people who 
decided they needed a reason to persecute Jewish people. Because in this scene, everybody's Jewish. It's just the way some Jews are behaving toward other Jews that's making Jesus' life harder. Right? That's an important thing to notice given current history and also given history through the ages. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Thomas brought this up on Sunday. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, and this, this part we didn't read as much, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Okay. Sit with that for a second. Caiaphas has said, as Thomas said on Sunday, something like Churchill might have said, or uh, Abraham Lincoln might have said, or FDR might have said, which is some people have to go into harm's way for the sake of the larger cause. That's how Caiaphas is framing this. But he's saying, therefore, it is right to, to have this guy die, to hand this guy over, so that the whole nation can survive. He's ready to trade Jesus for general peace. We'll get back to the dynamics that lead to that. But if you're Jesus, how does it feel? If you're a disciple, how does it feel? If you're Mary, who just saw Jesus raise his, her brother from the dead, you see the mix in the crowd. The Jewish leaders are trying to deal with what they see coming up as a problem. The people who follow Jesus would be horrified by this because they don't yet understand how things are going to go. So I want you to talk for three minutes this time at your table about something in your life that seemed like it was going to be a bad thing and lo and behold, it turned out to be a really importantly good thing. Because John frames this, right, with, with, um, with his narrator. He frames this as actually as bad as Caiaphas seems here. God made it into prophecy of the way Jesus' life and death were going to save not just the Jewish people, but everybody. So I want you to talk at your table about one thing in your life that you thought was going to be terrible or going the wrong way that flipped on you to your utter surprise. All right, go. Three minutes. All right, let's gather back out. I know that's not enough time to even, even have half of you share, but somebody got to share something with you, and hopefully two or three of you did at least. There is theology from Hebrew scriptures in the book of Genesis that sort of backs up being an unwit unwitting, unknowing vehicle of God. Do you remember the scene? Some of you will remember the scene when Joseph's brothers have, slowed, have, have sold him into slavery. Remember that? Sold him into slavery. He's been taken. He could, he could be killed. He could be, you know, they, they've, they've basically put him in a place where he's been sold into slavery, and they get to Egypt years later, 
and he's the guy who saves them from famine. And they are, oh no, right? They, they just think he's going to take out his wrath on us, but instead he's gentle and kind to them, and he says, you meant it for ill, but God meant it for good. I don't think Caiaphas sat and thought, how can I bring along God's purposes here for a, a dying Messiah? I, I don't think that at all. I don't think we have to put a knowing thought bubble over Caiaphas' head. There are all kinds of motivations going on with him. But the Bible says God can even use ill will in God's service. That's how good God is, right? So we've been through Matthew's passage, and we're now finishing John's passage. And the John passage where he says, let's trade Jesus for the safety of the people. Troubled Christians throughout the ancient world, troubled Christians into the medieval world. I got this partly because it's just a great image, isn't it? That's a medieval take on Dante, who wrote the uh, Divine Comedy. And he puts Caiaphas in the College of the Morning Hypocrites, right? Because he's a high priest and he gives up one of his people to death uh, just because it's expedient. And that's about where Christian history has put Caiaphas. I could have put 15 other literary references or theologians who have just trashed Caiaphas for his, his uh, putting Jesus in the way of death under Pilate. Here's where we switch to people who are trying to understand Caiaphas. Thomas gave us a taste of it on Sunday morning. He said, just trust me, Caiaphas' life was a bit more complex, and it's where he brought in Churchill and FDR, and he didn't bring in Lincoln, but he, in a conversation with me, we, we talked about Lincoln also. Um, because if the, if the judgment of Christian history, and if when we came into church on Sunday, we would have been in the hate Caiaphas zone, if you had been asked on a test when you came in, if you recognized the name Caiaphas, you would have probably said, bad guy. Bad guy, I would never do the things he did. That's probably what you would have said. It's probably what I would have said. I, I'm not going to read all the... Dante stuff. It's, it's in a translation that's kind of archaic. It's kind of fun, though. Look in uh, Canto 23 when you get home and just read it devotionally. Um, but he ends, up, uh, he ends up on a cross in the, in the same circle as the hypocrites. And, and I want to take you to what we know about Caiaphas from Josephus, whom Thomas mentioned on Sunday, and it complicates our view of what's up for this guy, this Caiaphas guy. These are going to be, uh, Emperor, Emperor Tiberius sends Valerius Gratus to be this sort of procurator of Judea, which is the office that Pontius Pilate will eventually have. Pontius Pilate will be this guy's successor. But I want you to look at how long these terms of office are for high priests that he, that he appoints. So Gratus deprived Ananus of the high priesthood and appointed Ismael, the son of Fabi, to be high priest. He also deprived him in a little time and ordained Eleazar. By the way, Lazarus is probably a, a Greek or Romanized version of Eleazar, right? Just for for Bible kicks. People change their name. Fred Couples, 
uh, family, the golfer, Fred Couples family, changed their name from Coppolo to Couples when they came into the United States because they, they saw their Italian neighbors getting beat on more than they wanted to get beat on. So in, given that prejudice, they changed their name. So did ancient Hebrew people sometimes, or they, they adapted it to make it more understandable. And so Eliezer, the son of Ananus, who had been high priest before to be high priest, uh, he appointed him to be high priest, which office he, he had held for a year before Gratus deprived him of it and gave the high priesthood to Simon, the son of Camithus. And when he had possessed that dignity no longer than a year, Joseph Caiaphas was made his successor. Our guy Caiaphas, right? When Gratus had done those things, he went back to Rome after he had tarried in Judea 11 years when Pontius Pilate became his, his successor. So if you were Caiaphas and you had watched five straight high priests get fired within a year, what would be your first goal? I'm going to make 367 days, right? I'm going to at least make 367. Keep your job. And how do you do that? Well, you don't tick off the procurator. Do you see that as, as Thomas mentioned on Sunday, there are forces at work in making Caiaphas's life complex. He's been named the high priest. One after another, the ones before him have failed. And we don't see the details about why Gratus got rid of them, but they weren't making him happy. The big question in first century Palestine, first century, among first century Jews living under Roman rule, the big question was, do we cozy up to Rome and just get along with this empire that is over us and taxes us too much and does all those things? Or do we rebel and revolt and try to overthrow them because we want the days of David back? That was the big, that was the big polarizing issue like immigration or gun control versus gun freedom, or right, the ones that would rank highest for us. That was the big issue. And Caiaphas was very aware of it. If he didn't cozy up to the Romans, it might not go well for him, for himself. Right? This is from John 18. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. This is in the middle of the scenes we've already been working on. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas had history as the high priest long ago, but notice who has the power in this system. They take him to dad-in-law. How would that feel for Caiaphas? He's second, even though he's got the office. So we've got, I want to keep my job, and I don't want to tick off my wife's husband, or my wife's father, right? I don't want to do that. So there's another vector of pressure here working. And 1812-14, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is just John reviewing for us. But now look at the third force that's in play, third pressure on Caiaphas that's in play. This is a list of failed messiahs in the years before and after Caiaphas. 
right? You've probably heard in some sermon or in some Bible study, or maybe you just are a historically interested person, you may have heard that it, Jesus wasn't the first to be declared a Messiah or to represent uh, any kind of king like David. This had happened before. Hezekiah, Ezekiel, defeated by Herod in 47 BCE in his rising up. Judas, also known as Theodos, son of Ezekiel, 4 BC. He's also mentioned in Acts 5, but all of these are from Josephus' Jewish wars or Josephus' antiquities. Simon of Perea in 4 BCE, um, a, between 4 BCE and the death of Herod. Athrongus the shepherd in 4 BCE, you can see that 4 BCE was a real uprising time, right? That, that those last minutes of Herod's rule, because he was getting pretty ugly. Judas the Galilean in 6 CE, so after Jesus is born, but before his ministry. Theodos, another Theodos in 44 CE, after Jesus' death and right. You kind of get the picture. You know what happened to all of them? They were killed, and it caused a big ruckus for Jews, because not only were the uprisers, not only were the leaders of the pack killed, but everybody got punished. Because Romans don't like this kind of stuff. They like pox, peace, which isn't really peace, it's just enforced not rising up. <laughs> right? And so he has this on his screen, which means not only is he dealing with the fact that he's the, the latest in a list of high priests who have had very short time. Not only is he the, okay, I got a list of father-in-law again, but he's also very aware of what happens when somebody rises up against Rome in the Jewish people. Now can you see why he might want to trade Jesus for the general peace? There are several things pressing in on Caiaphas and all of them would have impacted, and we happen to have access to all of these different strands of pressure, which isn't that uh, common in looking up people from the ancient world. We get to understand. Now, I want you to sit with your group for three minutes, and somebody who hasn't talked, and so pass the baton around a little bit to people who haven't gotten to speak, and ask yourself, what would you do in Caiaphas's place? Think for a second about how it must feel to be this guy and just think out loud together about what would be your solution to this. All right. I let you go because you were talking very well with one another and my three minutes seemed a little paltry. So um, I didn't show you the second screen, but can anybody notice what that scene on the right is? It's Masada, right? Because there came a time when the, the chief priest didn't make this decision, right? You've got more, I didn't show you the second screen of people on purpose, we've got more attempted uprisings and frankly, rises and falls in Rome's level of, of cruelty. So uh, obviously there would be more attempts at rebellion when Roman thumb is down harder on, on them, but notice the frequency in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. In 66 to 70 AD, uh, the Jews rose up against Roman power. 
and it led to a siege and then utter destruction of the temple and a decimation of, of the people and the city of Jerusalem. Can you see why Caiaphas was a little wary? Caiaphas knew Roman power. He knew what it could do. And as Thomas said on Sunday, if, they, if you were getting in their way, they'd, they'd just kill you. And if a lot of you were getting in the, their way, you'd, they'd kill all of you. So I think we probably can't appreciate the level of terror that that produced in the population entirely. Caiaphas had to appreciate that. Now, what is the purpose of all this? The purpose isn't that we come away ha putting Caiaphas on our saints list, right? That's not the purpose. The purpose is to ingrain in ourselves a habit of looking twice and not just saying it's red, I'm done with it. And here's where we kind of make the uh, transition to post Caiaphas. This is a beautiful ossuary that was found in 1990, and it has written on it, Joseph ben Caiaphas. So whether it's his or his family's, we have this from Jerusalem, and this would have been where his bones were laid or where one of his family's bones were laid. And it's, isn't it a beautiful find? When you find something that big and that fully in, intact and you're an archaeologist, you, you count yourself uh, having hit, hit the hit the Powerball, right? And it's a boon for us, too. We get to see something that's really old that is, is beautiful. The tribute to Caiaphas, as I say, we aren't memorializing him as saint, but we'll try to put to death our tendencies to judge and dismiss people before we know them. And to do that, I want to go to a, <laughs> to a part of life that is fairly familiar to me because it's my day job when I'm not day jobbing here. Um, so in 2018, there was, Pew did a, a poll like this, a survey like this, in which they ask people in the United States the simple question, um, is, are the people from the other party a lot or somewhat, somewhat more blank compared to other Americans? Right? Are the people from the other political party a lot or somewhat more blank compared to other Americans? The first word they do is lazy. 62% of Republicans, 26% of Democrats say, yeah, that other side, they're, they're more lazy than average. You know, they're more lazy than most of us. Immoral, 72% of Republicans, 63% of Democrats said the people on the other side, it's a little more immoral than the most, most of us. Dishonest, 72 and 64. Unintelligent, just over 50%. Closed-minded, notice it goes the other way on closed-minded. I think you can see the first and the last. Uh, red thinks blue is lazy, blue thinks red is closed-minded. But they both think each other are closed-minded. The reason I bring this up is twofold. One is that six years ago when this happened, these numbers weren't close to this many and we were all alarmed by them. Right? Whenever I flash this in a group that I go around the country and talk to about polarization, whenever I flash the one from 2018, people would go nuts when, when they found out that 35% of Republicans think that Democrats are immoral. Now look at it. 
72. We've nearly doubled some of these numbers just in the last six years. We have a growing tendency to say, I know them, I got them. I understand them. They are lazy, immoral, dishonest, un unintelligent, closed-minded. That's in the political sphere, and we've gotten really good at it. We've gotten really good at making assumptions about the other side. What lets us do that? Media, right? Media, if we listen to the, if we listen to the red media, the blues look awfully lazy and all those things. If we listen to the blue media, the reds look all those things. Yeah, friends. So we, are, we have fewer and fewer friends who are from the other side of the aisle. It's one of the things I love about Covenant, that we run into each other, because there are blues and reds in this room, and we just keep sitting together and eating together. But as a general cultural norm right now, we don't make friends with them. And therefore, we don't get to know them better. MLK, in a speech a year before the I Have a Dream speech, spoke in a little college called Coe College in Iowa, and essentially said, we, we hate each other because we fear each other. We fear each other because we don't live near each other. We don't live near each, near each other, so we don't know each other. We don't know each other, so we hate each other. Right? The distance, the social distance that we're putting between ourselves and those people, whether it be political or otherwise, is, is killing us. How many of you have heard a report recently about the, the probability of a civil war coming up. Right? <laughs> I was with a blue person today in a, in a meeting I had, and he said, well, if we're going to do that thing again, they can take Alabama and Mississippi, right? <laughs> and if I had been with a red person, they'd say, you know, they'd, uh, New York can go with it, right? The, the tendencies we have toward assessing them and staying where we are with our judgment instead of moving toward and trying to figure out Caiaphas. It's killing us. But it's not the only area of life where we do this. Stereotyping is a pretty common human thing to do. You know why, by the way, brain scientists tell us why we stereotype? It's efficient. Yeah, our brains love to take shortcuts. I've told you this before when we do crazy conversations, but our, our brains love to take shortcuts because it saves energy for other things. And so I have done this thing that maybe some of you have done. I have gotten in my car, in my garage, opened my garage door, and backed into the car that isn't usually there. <laughs> because my brain takes shortcuts. Stereotypes are a shortcut that is very convenient but it doesn't really serve us very well. We should find other shortcuts. So what I want you to do for, we'll, we'll do five to seven minutes here. What I want you to do is talk to one another about that phenomenon as it shows up in your life. Doesn't need to be a time of confession, but can be, right? If you, if you wanna share, you know, lately I've really been, uh, you know, I've really been prejudiced toward this kind of people or that kind. Feel free to do it. We've got a community of trust here. But let's just generally reflect on the phenomenon that we're describing, the kind of Caiaphas judgment, the thing that doesn't go toward misunderstanding but moves away from it and draws 
draws conclusions and, and then hardens them. All right, so how does this show up in daily life for you all? And you've got five to seven minutes. All right, folks, sometime about now, transition to a second question, which is what are you gonna do about it? Let's gather back out. I know you've solved it by now. Let's gather back out. I so appreciate you all coming. And so we did, uh, where do we see this happening? And then what are we going to do about it? And it all circles back to red's better if you see it all. Red's better if it takes on its, I mean, do you see cardinal there? Do you see magenta? Do you see all different kinds of things? We're glad we have different shades of red. And Paul thinks we should be glad we've got different kinds of people. There are a variety of gifts, uh, one giver, right? Variety of talents, a variety of ways that we do the world that is a bonus, that fact is a bonus for us if we'll take advantage, but our brain takes shortcuts. So as you linger with the question, what am I going to do about this thing about myself? Remember where we are. We're in, we're in Lent, and we are repenting. And so this is one of those things, and now I'm going to go past last week's sermon to an earlier one in the Change series, where there are some things we just need to leave behind. There's some things we need to jettison. This is one of them. This is, this is a matter of repentance. Making judgments and disqualifying people whom we have judged is one of those things that goes in Caiaphas's ossuary. A couple of things before you go. One is, you've got to come Sunday, because my sister Jill... Williams is going to be preaching Judas on Sunday. And Jill Williams can bring it. So that's one. Yeah, Judas is easy. Um, two is, I know some of you have been going since early this morning uh, at Bible. I know that. Uh, and so maybe you're worn out of Bible for the day. Maybe you've filled your Bible category in you. But I know others of you are saying, Alan, we only went 65 minutes. I've got much left in me. <laughs> so I'm doing a little Bible off the books up at uh, 5280 Burger, right? And it's going to happen at 8.30. And they have beverages. They have food, if you didn't catch one of the burgers. Um, we don't have this on the, on the promos or anything. We've mainly just invited people who aren't a part of Covenant. Uh, MP has, oh, can you hold that up? It's called Taproom Theology. Um, we mainly just Im invited on social media and out there, and we're just curious to see who comes, but it would be cool to have a few Covenant people there if you've got more time tonight and want to go up to 5280 Burger and, and sit around and read the Gospel of Mark because these are people, people who are coming are people who didn't go to church on Sunday mostly, right? They're, they're going to be people from around Austin who just want to find their way to a Bible study. So if you want to join for another, uh, we're going to go at it for probably 45 minutes up there. Um, so join us. Mainly, though, treat yourself to this both and of Sunday and Wednesday. It is a thing that God uses well. And life can get in the way. I know there are times when you have engagements and stuff. But if you hang with the full Lenten season, 
of going and hearing the sermon and worshiping on a Sunday morning and coming on Wednesday and doing this kind of thing with us on a Wednesday evening. God blesses that consistency. God blesses the times when we give the Holy Spirit a chance to work on us. Thank you for giving the Holy Spirit a chance to work on you this evening. Go forth with God's blessing. Amen? Amen. Amen.